happy Mother's Day to the handful of mothers we have here. But uh, we have good, good father, but I think we have some good, good mothers here today, too. So, And it's great to be back um, in my own bed with my own pillow. You know, that's, uh, you, you take for granted simple things uh, while you're gone. And I know that uh, you guys got a great um, overview last week from the team that went. Um, So, Penny, do you want to say anything about Australia before we jump in here? Well, I have a couple things to say about Australia, but I also want to pray for Fort McMurray today. Is that okay? Who knows what Fort McMurray is? Has anybody been listening in the news? I noticed a huge fire in Canada that has burned, what is it now, like, oh my goodness, like 500,000 acres. Um, a couple days ago, it had burned more area than the whole city of Azusa. And anyway, do you remember several months ago, I mentioned a lady that I had a heart for that I saw in a National Geographic magazine? And I kept, I ripped out the article and I kept it for years because she worked in this crazy wilderness place called Fort McMurray. Anyway, long story short, I don't know if you remember that story, but anyway, I reached out and found that lady on Facebook and I just had a heart for her and I didn't know why. Turned out she lost her job at the Simcrude Mine up in Fort McMurray, Alberta, Canada. And our house church prayed her through the difficult times and um, they had let her go without her pension. She'd worked almost 20 years because she fell asleep at the wheel of this giant machinery and ran it into a snow bank. And even though there wasn't any damage, they thought she was a risk, so they let her go. And it was a really, really hard time in her life. Then the Lord got a hold of her heart in a revival at her church, and she was resigned to whatever God wanted for her. And she was just looking at options and thinking she'd go into her art, which was her passion, and but she had a feeling God had something for her. And now I've been in contact with, with her this week because everything she's known and loved for so long and her, where her she and her sons and her animals live is completely gone. Everything, her city is gone, and they're all living in refugee camps scattered around the city and the crazy thing is they've even had to evacuate the camps they were in um, they in fact the main highway was burning and so they couldn't even they even though they were all in their cars and had packed up their stuff they couldn't even let them go in their cars because the fire was so raging there was no escape route and so they picked up thousands of people in helicopters so this is what she's going through right now. And right now she's at a place in Calgary, Canada now. And um, I've been encouraging her this week and assuring her that wherever she's she ends up, God has planned for her because there are many broken people around her right now. A lot of people have lost everything and are separated from loved ones, lost their animals, and have lost everything they've ever worked for. And... Anyway, I want to pray for them in Fort McMurray, and I want to pray for Kellyanne Forster because she has a ministry, whether she wanted it or not. She is smack dab in the middle of heartbreak and sorrow. So I want to pray for her right now. If you'll agree with me, and if you have anything to add, you certainly do. Father, we do pray for this woman, Kellyanne Forster. Father, I pray that, first of all, she will not be offended at you that she will realize that this was her plan, your plan from the beginning. Even when she lost her job, you knew what was in her future, and you knew that you would be using her to minister to many who have lost everything. So I pray, first of all, that you would raise up in her with a fortitude, with a resilience, and with a power that your Holy Spirit gives like no other time in her life that she will have a heart for the broken around her. And, Father, sometimes it's necessary that we go through tragedy ourselves to be able to relate to people around us. And I know that 
She's hurting today for her own losses, but I pray, Father, that she will think about the answers that she has for many that are so hurt and suffering and discouraged right now. I pray that you will give her opportunities, that you will give her boldness, that you will give her words of knowledge to speak specifically to people. And Lord, I also pray for her sons who do not know you, but that are with her right now. I pray that they will have a grateful heart, that their lives be spared, that they will understand that even if we lose everything on this earth, it's not more important than what we have if we receive you. So I pray that you will open the eyes of these sons, God, They will that this will be the season, the time, that they will have ears to hear what the truth is. Lord, bless the church in this hour. Bless the agencies that have gone there. We know that Samaritan's Purse is there. And we ask you, God, just to equip and empower and bring resources to all those that are trying to help. God, there are hundreds of thousands of people that are affected by all of this. So we ask you, Jesus, in this hour to minister to them, not only for their physical needs, but God, that you would provide a way for them to hear the truth that is so vital right now. Lord, pour out your spirit on these people. May they not curse you, but may they instead cry out to you for help. And we just pray for good reports that you will hear from Cheyenne, knowing and understanding that you've called her for such a time as this. Thank you for the incredible divine connections that you make. Even though this magazine that I saw was back in 2009, you had a purpose for me to get connected with this lady. And now, Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to pray for her because it's the one little contact we know in the midst of all that sorrow. So we pray this time, at this time, Lord, that you would just raise up the church, minister to physical needs, and most of all, that you would minister to the spiritual needs that people would find you, that there would even be revival breaking out in the different evacuation camps. Even your spirit can move in a community. So, God, we just ask you to do that and remind us to pray often in your name. Amen. In the same way, in Australia, our good friend Jan, who's in Australia, was before us. Um, I don't know. I, I must be a pretty pessimistic person sometimes, but I saw lost people everywhere I went, and it was breaking my heart. When we went in Sydney, we drove through an area called Kings something. Do you remember? Kings Crossing, yes. And people, oh, my goodness, it's like the North Beach of San Francisco. It's like, you know, the hub of, um, I don't know, Sunset Strip. I mean, it's just brokenness and prostitution and lost kids that have run away from home. And that in itself was impacting to me. Of course, there were beautiful things everywhere and so much fun being with these kids that we brought. They were just the best. And honestly, even in close quarters, even the little annoyances were very doable because their passion, their love, their fun was just so much bigger and better than any little things that might, you know, get difficult when you're all living in close proximity. But anyway, I just enjoyed so much being with them and seeing them minister because God really moved on them. I mean, it's cool when you can just step back and let this next generation take it away because they do it so well. So I really enjoyed watching our kids minister and, and watching them be blessed. It was like, you know, Christmas means a lot when you're when you're young, but when you get older, Christmas is all about your kids. You enjoy watching them get delighted. And that's kind of the way it was for us. We'd been to Australia before, but this time it was so fun to see um, everything that these young people enjoyed. And the other thing I want to say is that I also was so incredibly blessed that there are people just like us in Australia. We found them in every city. They feel like we do. They believe like we do. They know the Lord's coming soon. They have a passion for prayer. They love Jesus. And how we connect is beyond me. 
either it's really incredibly miraculous the way we happen to find those kind of people wherever we go around the world, or there's more of those people than we even realize, and maybe it's a little bit of both. But I was so encouraged to see um, the people we met in Sydney, the Korean congregation that we went to, and the Sydney House of Prayer with a bunch of young people all living together, and they hardly have anything, but they don't even know it. They don't know they're poor. They just love the Lord so much, and they love to worship around the clock. Um, so I'm, I was really, really excited to meet so many people that are just like us in this room. They, they love Jesus. They believe in prayer. They have a passion for the things of God, and that, to me, was an incredible blessing and a miracle to run into so many that are like us. Um, and then there were even others, after these guys went home, there were even others that we met that just want to minister and want to, you know, save the lost and worship Jesus. And so I was tremendously blessed by the love that they have for the Lord and also for us. That's one thing, maybe Rick will touch on this, but, oh, my goodness, Australia loves Americans. Christians look to the American church. They admire the American church. They want American church speakers to come out there and minister to them. They had such respect for us that that blew me away, frankly. When we were in Sydney, just they wanted to sit at our feet. They wanted to ask us questions. They wanted us to pray for them. And that was really humbling because I don't see us as any better than they are. In fact, some of them were pretty doggone passionate and really incredible intercessors. So it was humbling to see the way they think that we are something. I don't know why. <laughs> but anyway, that was what I was most impacted by, besides the gracious hospitality from Ruben and Kate. They're just such givers. And even though the end of the trip, you guys lucked out, <laughs> the end of the trip got really hard. We worked hard, um, especially Rick, man, working on the chicken coop day in and day out. But it's the Taj Mahal chicken coop, let me tell you. It is fancy. We had a wonderful time, and the last thing I want to say is that I was incredibly homesick. I missed not only my kids, but I missed this body. We really love you guys, and when we're not here, we really, really miss you. So, love you guys. Oh, and I have a little gift for the mothers today after. The only thing I would add to what Janice said was um, after the, the kids came back, we did meet with a number of pastors all from different streams, from the Pimula Baptist Church to the uh, Kuma uh, Episcopalian Church to uh, the little town, I can't remember the name, next to it from the Assembly of God Church. And uh, these pastors come because they have problems in their church. And they think we have the answers. And so, um, especially the Pimula Baptist Church, which is very interesting because it is a Baptist church, but they are charismatic and they do believe in end times. And so we had great times to talk. But the, the church in Australia, I can't emphasize enough how much they are grateful for the church in America. They tell us two things. Number one, we're the ones that sent missionaries down there that brought the church, that brought the gospel to uh, a penal colony. It, it was a prison uh, for, the, for the British. And um, also, they're so grateful for the way we saved them from the Japanese in World War II. And uh, those, those two things, they, uh, it, it's just amazing how much the people we encountered respect Americans because, um, you know, when I look at America, there's so much now not to respect, you know, um, but particularly the church. And they, they are hungry. They're hungry for the things of the Lord. And so it was a real blessing to go down there and very humbling to, to sit down. And, I mean, they have problems that are not uncommon to us, not things we haven't gone through. They have problems that we don't understand because of culture. I mean, how do you pastor a church in a city of 2,000, you know? And it's, it's the largest church in the whole region. And, uh, and all of the, the two elders in the church have authority over the pastor. But the people want the pastor to have the authority over the two elders. 
and it's a congregational way. And it's just that there's some messed up stuff going on. Um, but Jesus never changes, so we just take what his word says and let them figure it out. And I don't know what's going to happen in that mess, but uh, but we're glad to be home in this mess. And um, yes, I know. There's nothing like coming home to Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. I mean, that's just, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, Australians, everything. Everywhere you go, they're talking about Trump and Hillary. I mean, it's just they know about our politics, especially Ruben. Everybody in Australia that we've talked to knows Ruben thinks Ruben should be an American because all he watches is American news. And uh, so um, I just want to talk today about it's going to be the last um, part of a series on spiritual warfare, but it's really kind of a, it's a Mother's Day theme, believe it or not, because it's um, what we should be wearing, and uh, I know that's always important for mothers and uh, fathers too, but I want to talk about um, our, uh, our spiritual armor, and uh, it's, it's, it's fairly simple, and yet it's also um, fairly complex, because I've, I've come to this conclusion, and let me just talk about myself, and, and if it fits on you, then you can wear it. Um, we would never, ever, I guess I better restate that in the U.S., but I would say in this room, we would never go out of our house without first putting clothes on. I, I mean, it's the truth. And, and, and we plan everything. I mean, from our undergarments to our, which pants we're going to wear, what shoes we're going to wear, what socks we're going to wear, what socks. I mean, we're very specific about what we don't just grab the first thing we see and throw it on and say, let's go. And we're very specific about what we wear. And, and and um, and yet, I wonder how many of us each day um, walk out spiritually in the world. How many of us don't sit and, and consider um, what Scripture teaches us about what we're to wear every day? Because here, here's, here's the bottom line. The enemy doesn't sleep or slumber. The enemy is always mindful of who you are, where you are. He's always looking for a chink in your armor. And when we go out without any armor, he's, he's ecstatic because we're just open prey. He can just hit us from any side with anything. And, um, and so my exhortation today, my encouragement today is for us to begin to put on a mindset that when we get up in the morning, we're just not thinking about what we're going to put on our, our bodies, but we're thinking about what we're going to put on our spirit. Um, and, and Paul's real specific about what we should wear and why we should wear it. And uh, so when he's writing to the church at Ephesus, he says this finally, my friends. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So the first thing I want us to, to realize here is Paul says we have to put it on. Paul doesn't say that when you got saved, you got this permanent armor that stays on all the time. The, fi the final exhortation as he writes to the church at Ephesus about spiritual warfare, about how to walk um, in the power and authority of who they are in Christ, he says, here's my final exhortation to you. Here's my final instruction. He says that, that we need to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, and part of the process by which we do that is we need to purposefully put on the whole armor of God. That Why? So that we could stand against the wiles of the devil. Paul's saying, look it, the devil is not going to give up. Even though he's already been defeated, even though he already knows his demise, even though he's already lost the war, he is not going to give up doing everything he can to take as many people as he can out of the kingdom of God and into darkness with him. So when Paul writes this, he says, finally, brethren. So this is not an individualized exhortation. It's an exhortation to the body of Christ. And, and there, is this, um, there is this necessity for us to stand together. You know, Scripture says if one puts 1,000 to flight, two put 10,000 to flight. Um, uh, Solomon, when he's writing in Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, he says two are better than one. You know, for how can one defend himself if two can stand against the enemy? So when Paul is writing here, he's talking to the brethren. So he's talking about us in this community. And let me just put a little footnote. You know, Kate and, and Ruben have this incredible property. They're, the acreage of their farm is probably the same size as the city of Azusa. And yet they're the only ones that live there. They have this 
great compound, self-sustaining compound on this high, high peak on their property. And it, when I'm there, I, th- I, I think, man, would I love to have this. Man, could we do this? Could we do that? And yet they are so lonely because they don't have community. And they've tried to build community. And, and the ones who come to their Friday night prayer meeting don't believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and have believe in replacement theology, which means they believe the church has replaced Israel, so we shouldn't talk or pray for Israel. And those are two passions in Kate and Ruben's life. And that they want – Kate is all about revival. She's constantly talking about revival, about end times. That chicken coop I built, the Taj Mahal chicken coop, which the whole time I was building there, I was going, now, if I present the plans to Edson, would he approve these plans? Um, <laughs> um, but, but it's all about being, being self-sustaining. It's also about helping others with growing food and, and feeding others. And yet they long for what we have. Um, the one thing that, that so moved their hearts and ingratiated them to this community was when they came to our house church. And they sat there, and, and they just saw community taking place. And they have such a longing, such a passion for that. And so when Paul's writing here, he's writing to that type of community. He's writing to, to fellow believers who live together in, in one accord who will stand and fight together. So it's not an individual exhortation. It's actually a corporate exhortation that we stand together and that we stand together and be strong in the Lord. And this is a common exhortation from God when he's talking in the context of his children going and possessing the land. It was the same exhortation that was given to Joshua. Remember, Joshua is about ready to move into the land that was promised to the forefathers. And as he gets ready to walk in, this is the exhortation the prophet gives him. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. So God gave Joshua a similar command. We are dependent upon God's God's strength in our spiritual battle. At the beginning of, of Ephesians, Paul says this, that we may know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. So our strength comes from standing and being seated with Christ with understanding what our mandate is. For the children of Israel, Paul was saying, for for the church at Ephesus, he was telling them to go that your mandate is to be able to stand strong together against the schemes that the devil has. For the children of Israel will stand to be strong together that you can go in and possess the land that God's already promised to you, which is something we have to hold on to constantly. Just because God promises something to us doesn't mean he lays it in our lap. He promised the promised land to the children of Israel, but they had to go in and conquer it. And things God has promised us in the city of Azusa, things God has called us to do, just because God has promised it and said he's going to do it, there is a responsibility on our part to do what he's called us to do. And that is to pray it in and to continue to pray and not to go by what we see, but to go by who we know and to not let the circumstances of man dissuade us in any way from standing firm in what God has called us to do. To be strong in the power of his might, to move in, to possess the land that he's promised. It's a corporate calling. And why are we supposed to do this? So that we may be able to stand. If you read Ephesians 6, the one thing Paul says over and over and over again, it says, stand therefore, that you may be able to stand. And when all else has been done, stand. Continually he's telling us that we are to stand. And the word to stand against, and this word stand against is, is a word that will sound familiar to a lot of us. Uh, it's antihistamine, from which we get the word antihistamine. And antihistamine is something that fights against histamines, which cause you to sneeze and to get all swollen up. And so this word antihistamine is really to vigorously oppose, to stand face-to-face against an adversary. So when you have allergies, when you have a cold, you take an antihistamine so that it can fight against the histamine that's causing you to get all congested and swollen up. It's a military expression for us, and it refers to the posture that we're supposed to take toward the enemy. The devil no longer holds us under his control. Do you believe that? Do you believe the devil no longer holds us under his control? You better believe it. Because if you don't believe it, you know, we're a sad lot. God delivered us from the devil's grasp when Jesus said it is finished. 
When he said it is finished, it was done. Jesus conquered death, hell, and the grave. And all, all the authority on heaven and earth was given to us by that great victory. So the, the devil no longer holds us under his control unless we let him. So who was our enemy? Because Paul goes on, he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. So we need to understand that our battle is not against each other. One of the things that was enlightening but sad at the same time was we sat down with these these pastors, all from different streams, all wanting the same thing, but understanding so much of their battle was against flesh and blood. They were fighting battles amongst themselves instead of coming together and standing against the one who was causing the dissension in their congregation. Uh, for the Anglican pastor, it was, it was a great story because um, he was actually the, the pastor who helped Ruben when Ruben's first wife committed suicide, and Ruben was walking through that dark time in his life. Um, Ethan came alongside, and, and Lily walked him through, and then Ethan's marriage fell apart, and um, his wife left him, and, and he got remarried. And here's, here's Ethan, who was an Anglican cessationist. Cessationist means that they don't believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, he was also a Calvinist. He believes that God chooses everybody. But his new wife, oh, my goodness, she lived with um, – She lived with Jackie Bollinger for two years in Texas. Uh, you know who Jackie Bollinger is? Jackie Bollinger was the one who went into the, she just got on a boat and she went until she had the boat stopped. And she ended up in China in the Forbidden City. And she became a woman who transformed the w very worst part of, of China. And uh, drug addicts um, and uh, Edson and Philip got to go and spend some time with her and, and like, for them, their job was to pray in tongues all night over drug addicts. So he's married this woman now who believes in the power of the Holy Spirit, who sees God transform things. And so they're having the first um, church camp out that they'd had in like 12 years. And they were having it in Jindabyne, which is right next door. And uh, so the wife had this view of what they were going to do, how the Holy Spirit was going to move. And, and the husband was just happy that everybody was going to come to the gathering, and um, Reuben tried to get them to let us come to worship, but the husband wouldn't go for it. He says, nah, we're not quite ready for that yet. He says, we only want to sing each verse once. That was his response. Um, <laughs> um, but we have to understand that our battle is not against flesh and blood. You know, we're to stand together. We're not to fight against each other. Right? We're, we're to... We're to get together in the war room and to find the strategies of God as we stand against the principalities that have been assigned by the enemy over this world, um, over what God has called us to do. Otherwise, we become easily detoured, and we end up wrestling with human adversaries. So we should prayerfully be warring against these invisible forces that are behind the scenes. The Bible calls them spiritual hosts of wickedness. Um, I'm, I don't think you can be more descriptive of what they are supernatural entities whose main goal is to misdirect our destiny. The enemy's purpose is to cause you and I to be misdirected. And as he does it with, with these wiles, you know, the wiles of the enemy. The, the wiles of the enemy, wiles means this cunning deception to advance evil purposes. That's what we're to stand against. Paul is saying the enemy is cunning. He's a smart guy. You know, he knows, I've always, I've said this before, you cannot be a deceiver unless you know the truth. The enemy knows the truth. So that's how he's such a good deceiver, because he knows what the truth is, so he knows if he can twist it just enough, he can get us to buy into it, that he can deceive us, and we'll end up walking in ways of evil. So we need to understand that spiritual hosts of wickedness, that, that God has given us this victory, this and I love the way Paul says this. In Ephesians 3, he says, To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God may be made known by the church. He doesn't say that the church would know it. He says that the church would make it known to who? The principalities and the powers in heavenly places. God has assigned to us by the Holy Spirit 
this manifold wisdom, he gives us the wisdom that we can make known to the principalities that we know the power and authority that has been given to us through Jesus and that the principalities know that we know. He says, God has given us the wisdom to let them know. But let me tell you, you can't convince an enemy that you're ready for battle if you're standing naked before him. So we have to understand why, why Paul is so critical about us putting on this armor and walking in it every day because God supplies believers with the armor that he himself wears. It's his armor. It's not our armor. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah said with regard to armament that God wears. In Isaiah 11:5, he says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Then he goes in Isaiah 59:17, he says, For he, meaning God, puts on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and he was clad with zeal as a cloak. It's not like us being David and trying to take Saul's armor and put it on. No, we've been given armor that fits. We've been given the very armor worn by God himself, and he has entrusted it to us because he knows this is the armament that is able to stand against the schemes of the devil, these little cunning um, ideas, these little cunning diversions that the enemy comes with to destroy a church community through division or through false doctrine. Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, he says, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. And that word craftiness is the same word as wiles. So as he deceived Eve by his evil purposes, he says, Paul says, I fear that somehow your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. So we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ as our armor. Listen again to what Paul says when he writes to the church of Rome. He says, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. See, without Jesus, there's no armor. Without Jesus, there's nothing for us to wear. We do stand naked. We are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ every day. He is our truth. He is our righteousness. He is our peace. He is the object and the source of our faith. He is our salvation. He is the word. If we put him on, then we've made no provision for the flesh. See, we have to decide each day, am I going to make provision for my flesh to be satisfied, or am I going to put on the Lord Jesus Christ so the only thing that satisfies me is what satisfies Christ? And that should be our desire. That should be our destiny. That should be our pursuit. So Paul goes down and he begins to define what each part we should put on each day. Mindfully consider what we are to wear as we walk out into the world knowing that there's this cunning principality that's waiting to deceive us in a way that we won't expect. He says, first, therefore, put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with the belt of truth. So what is the belt of truth? Well, Jesus said, we know it, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The, the, the belt that the Roman, and understand, when Paul writes this, He's looking at Roman soldiers, and the Roman soldiers were the most, uh, were the best trained soldiers in the world at that time. They conquered the world. They ruled the world. And so their soldiers had this armament designed for them to fight the battle in a certain way. One thing they wore was this wide belt that encircled their waist. And the belt served two purposes. Number one, it was like, you know when you go to a Home Depot now or you go to a warehouse store, that when any of the workers are going to move something, they have these black elastic belts on that they have to support their back. Well, the first thing that belt was for was to give them support to be able to stand a fight. The second thing was, believe it or not, there wasn't such a thing as pants back then. Guys wore robes. Soldiers wore robes. You know, you always see these guys in these short skirts, and those did eventually come about. But for the most part, the Roman soldier always would just put his armament over this, this robe that would come down to their knees, 
And if you're trying to run and trying to fight when you got this robe around you, they wore this white belt so they could pull it up between their legs and they could tuck it into their belt. And in, in essence, their robe would now become fence. And they would be able to move freely. They would be able to, to go to and fro. So the, the, the truth is the very first thing that we're supposed to put on every day. Satan always seeks to deceive, whether subtly or blatantly. Satan is always trying to get us to believe a lie. He's always trying to get us to buy into something that isn't true. So if we put on truth every day, then we can't be deceived with something that isn't true because we're already wearing the truth. Because this is what the scripture says. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. We can't walk in bondage. We can't walk in encumbrances if we're wearing the truth. We see this undermining corruption. The truth occurs on many levels. People denying the supernatural and, um, and, the, and instead exalting humans. Dependence on human resources as people search for substitute gods. The absence of absolute values of right and wrong. We see this going on every day. Um, you know, Ruben is a, is a world-renowned vet, and, and he travels um, still even though he's retired. He's, he'll be going next week to uh, Dubai to um, give accreditation to a veterinary school in Dubai and to make sure that everything they have for their, the, the, the students that come and study will give them the full accreditation they need to be surgeons on horses and, 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 and all of this stuff. And so, um, and, and so he's, he's asked to do that. And so he has, he has veterinary friends all over the world, and, they are, and many of them are liberal, many of them veterinary people. And a couple in South Africa that he had spent time with while we were there, he'd given them a couple of books by Dinesh D'Souza, and they'd read the books. And they wrote him back a, a, a nine-page letter um, with their objections to the different things in Dinesh D'Souza's book. But the one thing they said was, our eyes were open to where there's something about Christianity we never saw before. And so, but they says, but for the most part, we're universalists. We want to believe a bit of everything. And that's the deception that has come into the world, that we can take a bit of Buddhism, we can take a bit of Hinduism, we can take a little bit of Islam, we can take a little bit of the Unitarian Church, we can take a little bit of Mormonism, we can take it all and put it together, and we'll have a religion that everybody, we'll even throw some Judaism and Christianity in, and everybody will feel good about it, and we'll all want to worship at the same place. That's the great deception. And people that, that buy into that are people who have not girded themselves with the truth. And there is only one truth. You know there can only be one truth. There can't be two truths. There's only one truth. And truth is pure. The moment truth has been in any way, you, you, you take one-tenth of one percent of an atom of truth away, it's no longer true. Truth is an absolute, and there's only one absolute, and that's Jesus Christ. There's only one salvation, and that's through Jesus Christ. There is no other salvation. There is no other way. So Jesus promised knowing the truth would make us free. So we need to make sure every day we say, Lord, I want to walk in truth. Please keep my mind set on that which is true. The breastplate of righteousness. You know, we're to put on this breastplate of righteousness, the holy and perfect righteousness of Jesus is in those who are born again and filled with his Holy Spirit. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, the, one of the very first things he says is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. For the Roman soldier, this, this breastplate was, again, it was leather, and it was formed around their chest area, their upper torso, and it was there primarily to protect their vital organs. Um, you know, it, it wasn't foolproof or fail-proof. Uh, an arrow could still pierce it, a sword could go through it, but it was better than just having nothing. And so this breastplate was to protect their hearts, their tender areas. For us, we are declared righteous when we trust Jesus. We are commanded to practice righteousness as a habit of life. This is what Peter says. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. So when we live holy, consecrated lives before God, we are putting on righteousness. You see, you can't have it both ways. We can't stand and declare we're righteous and, and participate in things that are unholy and unpure and ungodly. Our hearts are guarded and protected 
from the arrow's slings, from the, from the devil's slings, from the devil's arrows, when our heart is protected in righteousness because we have covenanted with God that we are going to walk in purity. We're going to walk in holiness. We're not going to let any impure thing come to our eyes. We're going to allow any thoughts of anger or lust or covetousness or, or whatever it is come into our mind. We instead are going to purpose in our heart that today, Father, I want to walk in the holiness of your Son. Because when we walk in holiness, this enables us to overcome and to resist the devil. Scripture tells us that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. Deliverance is God's work. Overcoming is the battle which requires our armor. Um, I've, I've learned one thing about God. For God, 4 o'clock in the morning is 4 o'clock in the morning no matter what time zone you're in. So even though I'm in Australia, I don't know what it is about him at 4 o'clock in the morning. He has it on the Internet. And he wakes him up at 4 in the morning, and he just says this simple thing. He says, tell them overcoming is not deliverance. So I get up, and I go to my Bible, and I, I sit down in the, in the living room and, and wherever we are, and I look in them to wait upon the Lord. And um, he says, asking God to deliver you from the things he's allowed to come into your life to overcome is asking God to do your job. You see, the crown, the reward is for the overcomer. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the testimony. Do we need deliverance? Yes, we do. We need deliverance from sin. There are people that have believed lies. There are people that have bondages in their lives they need to be delivered from. But we need to understand those, those battles we fight daily, God allows those in our lives because we need to learn how to overcome. And too many times when God brings something in our path, we're like Paul. Paul says, you know, three times I asked God to to get rid of this spirit that was sent to buffet me, lest I become too proud because of all the revelation I had. And God said, Paul, deal with it. My grace is sufficient for you. You see, God is going to allow those things to come into your life. Remember, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, you know, Satan's come and asked to sift you, buddy. And so it's going to happen. You remember Job. When Jesus said, have you seen my servant Job? And Lucifer says, well, of course he's a happy guy. Look at all the stuff you do for him. And Jesus says, do whatever you want to do. Just don't harm his body. You see, the Bible tells us there's this accuser that's before the throne every day. And, and he's up there, according to Revelation, until that moment comes when he's cast out of heaven for good and he's no longer to make accusation. But according to the book of Revelation, he's before the throne of God making accusation day and night about you and I. And he's asking permission to bring things in our life to cause us to stumble, to cause us to be distracted. And Jesus allows that. The Father allows us to encounter difficulties because the reward is not for God removing something out of our path. The reward is for those who overcome. And how do we overcome? By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony. You see, whatever it is that you're tempted by, whatever it is you struggle with, and you're saying, God, take it away, God, take it away, God, take it away. God's there saying, no, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. He says, no, flee youthful lust. He says, don't be afraid. He says, resist. You're to stand. We're to wear the spiritual armament. We are to overcome those things the enemy is putting in our path to distract us because the reward is for the overcomer. God's not looking for people who simply know how to say, God, fix it for me. God's looking for people that when they encounter the schemes and the wiles of the enemy, they call upon him and they know how to overcome. And sometimes overcoming is just simply running the other direction. Sometimes it's grabbing somebody else and saying, hey, I'm really struggling right now. Please help me get through this. The, the day we got home, we went and saw you know, our, our, our grandkids went to, to Rebecca's house. And, and uh, actually, it was the second night. And uh, so Friday night, we're there, and uh, they're watching uh, The Hulk, the Incredible Hulk, the movie. My grandson is just enamored by Marvel um, movies. And so Janet and, and Becca went on an errand, so I sat there, and I'm watching um, part of the Hulk with, with my grandson. And um, 
also watching, the Lord says to me, this is what overcoming is. And it was a scene where, you know, the, the guy, whatever his name is, he's a stoic again, always has poisoning. And so whenever his blood pressure gets, because of anger, gets up over 200, he becomes the host. So he's, he's left, he's hiding in South America, wherever he is, and he's going to this man who's teaching him how to grieve and how to keep his blood pressure down so that he doesn't become angry. And in the process, the guy has to do things to cause him to be angry. That's why he's sitting there, the guy just starts smacking him across the face, trying to make him get mad. And he's looking at his blood pressure on his, on his, on his wrist, making sure it stays under 200. And then you see scenes after that where he encounters times where the men want to fight him or they're, or they're trying to hurt somebody, and he wants to jump in, and they, and they, they try to encourage him to become angry, and he keeps saying, you don't want me to get angry. You don't want me to get angry, and he keeps looking at his blood pressure, and he runs away from the situations where his blood pressure would get over 200 because he doesn't want to become the Hulk. Now, Marvel Comics is not in the Bible, but I thought it was a great picture of what it means to overcome. See, he knew he had to do his part. He knew he had to subject himself to the things that would cause him to be what he didn't want to be so that he could learn how to overcome them. And that's the same thing God is calling us to do. God is allowing things to come in our path so that we can learn how to overcome. You can't learn to overcome unless there's something to overcome. It's not a theory. You know, it's not something you read in a book and go, okay, I've got it. You know, after I shared with with uh, Kate and Reuben, you know, the, what the Lord had said to me and how I'd spend it, Reuben says, oh, you got to read this book. And so five minutes later, he sent this book to my Kindle. And um, it's one of Watchman Nee's books called The Overcoming Life. And so I sat there and I read The Overcoming Life by Watchman Nee. And everything Watchman Nee said, I just said in one sentence. That you cannot, you cannot walk in victory if you don't know how to overcome. And the reason we're given spiritual armament is so that we can overcome. So to overcome something means it has to be in our way. It has to be a distraction. has to be an obstruction that is going to hinder us from being who God has called us to be. And God wants us to own who we are. God wants us to own what he's called us to. And the only way we can own it is to fight through it and to be able to stand and say, okay, here I am. God... I'm standing, I'm overcoming because I'm not walking out and facing this guy naked. I'm going to wear my truth. I'm going to put a breastplate of righteousness on. I'm going to stand before you. So it's the confession of sin also that keeps us righteous because we're not perfect. We are going to stumble. And Paul again, this time when he writes to, or John, when he writes his first letter, he says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we're cleansed from unrighteousness, that means we once again become righteous. So it is the blood of Jesus that makes us righteous. We're supposed to wear the, the sandals of peace. You know, it says, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. A lot of people don't know this, but the Romans invented cleats. And so the way that they were able to stand better against their enemies, they took their sandals and they drilled nails to their sandals. So they had these spikes that would grab into the ground. So they would shod their feet with these spikes so that they had better footing than their enemy had. And then they would make sure strategically they would choose to fight in places that had bad footing. Because their enemy couldn't stand, but they could because they'd shod their feet with these special sandals. We're supposed to shod our feet, our feet with the gospel of peace. You see, preparation, it says... Shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This firm foundation that keeps us standing under the attack of the enemy is the gospel of peace. And what is the gospel of peace? Jesus says, my peace is not the peace of the world. He says, I'm leaving my peace. It's not as the world gives. He says, my peace passes understanding. So this is what this means. That when we enter into, into the battle, if we're shod, if our feet are wearing the gospel of peace, we have peace of heart. We have peace of mind with whatever we're encountering because we know that God has brought us to this place. Whatever obstacle, whatever thing we're supposed to overcome, we don't have to do it out of worry, out of angst, out of discouragement, out of fear. 
we can do it out of peace because we have been firmly established on the ground of the word of God and we can stand firm and we're not going to lose our fitting and so footing so we can have peace of mind to know that whatever comes our way we're going to be able to stand because we have prepared ourselves to stand in peace and to not allow the the fear of the moment overwhelm us and then we're to wear the shield of faith and I want you to look at what Paul says here he starts by saying above all so he's talked about a number of things, a belt of truth. He's talked about a breastplate of righteousness. He's talked about our feet being shod. He's going to talk about a shield. He's going to talk about a sword. He's going to talk about a helmet. He's going to talk about all these things. He says, here's the most important one. He says, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. It is Paul who says when he wrote to the church of Galatia, he says, I am crucified with Christ. Why? And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. See, the shield was the soldier's primary um, defense mechanism when he went into battle. They weren't that big. They're about four feet tall. They're made out of wood. They were covered in leather again, but they would take this, this leather and they would soak it in water. Why? Because one of, the, one of the schemes of their enemies was to light their arrows and to shoot fiery arrows at them. And you, we've seen all the Knights in Shining Armor TV shows. You, you've seen all those movies. But when these shields were dipped in water with leather, when the fiery sh arrows would hit the shield, the water would put the fire out. And what they learned to do was they learned to march together with their shields overlapping so that when the fiery arrows were fired, they couldn't get the person next to them behind them at all. Sometimes they just get down on their knees and would get behind the shield, just be a wall of shields, to put out the fiery arrows. Paul's looking at this, and he says, we need to understand every day the enemy is going to fire fiery arrows at us. He's going to fire darts at us to cause us to doubt whatever. So he says, above all, the thing that puts out the fiery darts of the enemy is faith. It is the shield of faith. He's, he's basically saying this. Look it. If you've lost your helmet, you've lost your shoes, you've lost your sword, Whatever you do, don't lose your faith. Faith is the one thing above all because you can always stand behind your faith. And even though you have no sword to swing and no helmet on your head and no breastplate, you stand behind that shield of faith, it'll still put out the fiery darts of the wicked one. So we need to make sure we walk in this shield of faith. And how do we get this shield of faith? Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. Remember, how do we overcome? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Our testimony was birthed out of faith. The ones who went before us, they had a good testimony because of faith. We are told that we are to have this shield of faith above all. Faith covers all the armor, protects the vital of life. Above all, literally means to place or lay one thing over another so that both are still evident. So even though you may still have a, she a breastplate on, still may have a helmet on, you still may have a sword that people can see, the one thing that you want to cover it all is your shield. And Paul says the shield for us is faith. The role of faith is to extinguish the lies of the devil. Can I tell you, if you walk in faith and you know the truth, the devil will never be able to lie to you. You will never be deceived. You have faith in what the Word of God says. And the role of faith is to extinguish these lies. It's by faith. It's the faith in what we believe and the one in whom believe. And the value of faith is not faith itself. The value of faith is the object of our faith, and that's Jesus Christ. We're supposed to wear the helmet of salvation. And the writer of Acts says this, nor is there salvation in any other. In other words, salvation only comes through one. That's Jesus. In, in uh, reading a letter from these uh, uh, very, very smart people down in South Africa, um, he's a vet and his wife is, I forget what she is. And, and the reason they're searching right now is because she has terminal cancer. So they're trying to find an answer. What happens when she dies? Where's she going to go? And so they've been looking at life after death. And, um, but the helmet of salvation, and so they're saying that salvation has gone through many ways. 
And just because there's many testimonies from many people in many walks of life who've had afterlife experiences, that afterlife experiences are not the exclusivity of Christianity. And we know that Christianity is not about afterlife experiences. Christianity is about Jesus, period. It's about a person. It's not about an experience. And so our control center from which all our life is directed is salvation. If we, if, if we don't have salvation, we're not transformed. Salvation is what gives us relationship with God. It's the only way. It's only through salvation and by salvation that we're able to have fellowship with God. It is this transformation that allows us to think right and to wage a holy war. And remember, salvation is not an action or a prayer. Salvation is a person. Salvation is the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, he says, take up the sword of the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, Roman soldiers carried short swords. They didn't carry long swords. Long swords were, or, or broad swords um, were generally a weapon of choice in an offensive campaign because they could go out way before you. It was long enough. You could keep your enemy away, and you could do damage. They chose the, 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 the short swords because Romans believed in close hand-to-hand combat. They didn't believe in battle from a distance. They believed that you're right in the face of the enemy. So they had all their armament on. They had this shield, and all they needed was a short sword because a short sword could hide behind your shield, and you could jab it at any time, and you could kill your adversary. And so when Paul's looking at this, when the fight comes to us, it is this weapon which we use to defend ourselves. It is this weapon, the victorious sword of the Spirit, God's Word. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We behold His glory as the only begotten of the Father. The Word of God is the only offensive weapon you and I are given. We don't have bows and arrows. There's no bow of something, no arrow of something. We're given one offensive weapon, and that's the sword, which is the Word of God. The best picture I have for this rhema, for this the spoken word of God. Um, it, and it's not talking about, we just don't hold the Bible and go, get back because I have the Bible in my hand. We have to know the word. We have to speak it. That word is spoken. The greatest picture I have is, is Jesus after he comes out of the wilderness. And, and basically what Jesus did was he went to this armament he had called the Pentateuch. And he walked into this armory, and he found three swords. And he took these three swords, and as the enemy came against him, he had a sword that was ready for every attack the enemy had. Each time the enemy came to him, in fact, the second time, the enemy tried to to fool Jesus and say, I have a sword too. You know, isn't it written, he will give his angels charge over them? You know? And, and, And so Jesus withstood the wiles, the evil schemes of the devil, with his sword. He was able to take his sword and jab. And it tells us that after the third time, the enemy left him, and the angels came and ministered to Jesus. So it tells us a couple of things. Number one, the enemy is relentless even if you're Jesus. He knew who Jesus was. He knew everything that was going on there. He was relentless. He didn't just come at him once. He didn't come at him twice. He came at him three times. So we need to know that we, we can't consider ourselves to be, oh, poor me, if the enemy keeps coming after us the same way. He kept coming after Jesus the same way. He wanted Jesus to do one thing. He wanted Jesus to worship him. And he tried every way he could to tempt him to do it. Satan wants the same thing from us. And we would never say, I worship you, Satan. But the moment we walk out from under the protection of the armor of God and we believe the lies of the enemy is the moment we begin to serve him. It's the moment we begin to bow to him. We go into battle with the enemy. There will be just the right sword for every battle. You need to know the book. You need to know the scripture. You need to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil by saying, Up, I know what you're saying here, but this is what the Bible says. Yeah? Nope, Bible says I can do this. What? Nope, I have this sword. We need to know the word of God. Finally, this all takes place according to Paul, at the end of it, it all takes place in the war room. He says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. All saints. In the briefing room of the Holy Spirit, 
we have the ability to be in direct communication with our commanding officer at all times. I can't emphasize this enough. Paul talks about not forsaking so great a salvation. I think also we need to not forsake such a powerful gifts as the gifts of the Holy Spirit. If you have a prayer language, if you pray in tongues, you need to be praying in tongues all the time. That's not just something you put on the shelf and you, you use when all of a sudden you get desperate or all of a sudden you don't know how to pray. You need to be praying in tongues, praying in the Spirit at all times. He says, praying with all prayers and supplication of the Spirit. The problem on battlefields has always been the same. The soldiers lose communication with their commanding officers and they don't know what to do when they get into a difficult situation. Most battles that are lost is because there's no leadership, there's no communication between the commanding officer and the soldiers on the ground. We don't have to be like that. Whatever place we're in, wherever we are, we are in constant communication with our commander-in-chief when we pray in the Spirit. Constantly talking to him. Constantly hearing him speak to us. The problems are forever solved in the spiritual realm. Our greatest asset is the ability to be able to call upon the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, our Commander-in-Chief, in the very heat, the heart of the battle. At that moment when you are suffering the greatest temptation, it doesn't matter what the temptation is. Maybe it's the temptation. Maybe you lack the hope. Maybe it's to lose your temper. You know? Maybe it's you're in the middle of a fast and it's a temptation to let that Hershey's kiss melt in your mouth so you can swallow it and say, I'm still on liquid fast. Maybe it's that temptation to, to just look a second time at that, that person that you have an impure thought of. Whatever it is, there is that moment when we can call upon the commander-in-chief and we can just say, God, we can pray in the Spirit, but He will give us the strength and the instruction of what we need to do to overcome at that moment. Sometimes He's just going to say, drive. Get in your car and drive. Sometimes He's going to say, stand. Pray in the Spirit. I'll give you what you need the moment you need it. This all prayer is literally every order of praying. This is a specific method by which spiritual warfare is carried out. You will pray more powerfully in the spirit if you purposely each day put on this armor mode. You would never, ever go outside naked. At least I would. Scare away too many people. But we would never go outside naked because we know the necessity of clothing. But why would we choose to go any day, any moment, out into the world without armor? We have to physically get up in the morning and choose what clothes we're going to wear. We've got to put each piece on. You know, nobody's come up with a suit that when you just step into it, your shoes, your socks, your pants, your underwear, your T-shirt, your shirt, your tie, your jacket are all on in one piece. We've got to go through the process of putting each piece on. Why would we not do that every day with our spiritual armor mode? Why would we not simply begin the day by saying, Lord, I stand before you today and I want to gird my, my, my loins about with truth today. I want to walk in truth. Father, I want, I want my heart, my, my vital parts to be covered in righteousness. Father, I want to walk. I want my feet to walk in peace. I want to know that whatever I encounter today, I don't have to be fearful. I don't have to be overwhelmed or nervous. I can walk in peace because I am walking in the gospel of peace. I want to know today that I have above all, I'm walking in faith. That no matter what the enemy shoots at me today, Father, my faith is in you. My trust is in you. I know that you have a way out for me. I want to remember that I am yours because of the helmet of salvation. By the blood of your son, by the sacrifice he made, I am called your son. And I want to put that on every day to remind me. And Father, the sword, I want to know your word. Holy Spirit, bring to memory everything I memorized and convict me and memorize more. Because when the enemy comes after me today, Father, and he will, when he has this scheme where he's going to try and trip me up today, I want to be prepared so that I can overcome so that I can resist, because your word tells me if I resist him, he'll flee. 
And your word tells me if it's too much for me to run away. Your word tells me greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. So, Father, I stand on that. So why would we not put on our armament every day? How long does it take? It is our primary source, the primary source of our strength against the powers of this age. And I'm telling you, it's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. You know, it's, it's not about politics. It's not about world economy. It's about Jesus. It's about his kingdom. And it's about being soldiers and standing for what he's called us to. Three of my favorite quotes about prayer. Paul Bilheimer, and if you've never read the book, Destined for the Throne, you need to read that book. He says, prayer is where the action is. Prayer, prayer is the battle. John Calvin, not John Calvin, I almost said John, John Wesley. Just making sure you're all awake. John Wesley said, God does nothing except in response to prayer. And finally, Leonard Ravenhill, great revival. It's a great book written called Why Revival Church. He says this, no man or woman is greater than his prayer. You want to be great in the kingdom? Pray. You want to be great in the kingdom? Make sure you're equipped to fight the battle. You want to be great in the kingdom? You have to be an overcomer. You can't at the moment the battle comes say, oh, God, take it away. He says, no, I've given you everything you need to overcome. Why, why have I equipped you with this so that you can run away and expect me to fight the battle for you? I already won the war. You need to stand. You need to overcome. You need to walk in authority. You need to know who you are in Jesus. So, Father, we ask right now in Jesus' name, God, that we will be fashion-minded to every day be styling in our armor. God, that we would every day awaken and say, I want to walk in truth today, Father. Gird my loins about with truth. I want to be righteous. I want to be holy before you, God. Let my heart be clean of anything that is sin. Wash it clean. Father, I want to stand in faith. I want to have peace wherever I go. I want to be reminded how great my salvation is, the great price that was paid by my Savior, Jesus. And Father, I want to use your word just as Jesus used the word when he came out of the wilderness. So every time the enemy comes and he tries to trap me into something, he knows just what button to push. Try to get, you know, our blood pressure up to the point where we give in, that we can declare the word of God and we can just nip it in the bud. So Father, I'm asking that you would, by your Holy Spirit, as this community, Lord, this, this small regiment, God, that we every day would stand in prayer. Because you tell us at the beginning, finally, brethren, that this is not a battle we fight alone. It's a battle we fight together. We're there side by side with you in this day for the battle you've called us to, the city of the Jesus. And we thank you, Father, for that privilege and for that honor. And we ask that we would be found faithful to that you've entrusted to us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Look at that. Two minutes to 12. Come on. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Mother's Day gift. So you're welcome, Mom. Best gift I can give you. All right. Don't forget Tuesday night prayer, Wednesday night prayer. And, um, yeah. Is there anything else I forgot or underlayed?